Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. My next guest has spent a career improving the lives of veterans and others with physical disabilities. He's overseen development of vastly improved wheelchairs and prosthetic devices. Now he's an inductee to the Inventors Hall of Fame. I spoke at length with VA senior research career scientist and Paralympian himself, Rory Cooper. He also directs the Human Engineering Research Laboratories, a joint VA and University of Pittsburgh effort. Here's an excerpt. Academia has a constant influx of new people and young people. And, you know, one thing about students is they're like bees. They, uh, they're pollinators. They, uh, they take classes from different professors and different departments, sometimes in different colleges or schools. We love to bring interns into our lab to expose them both to research and rehabilitation engineering and assistive technology, as well as to the VA and learning that the federal government does have uh, inventors and innovators and some amazing researchers and scientists and uh, they also bring their perspective because they're not just coming from our affiliate university or our local universities, but they bring national and sometimes even a global perspective. And that keeps me on my toes, keeps all the other engineers and scientists here engaged. That's a really important part of what makes us a successful. And then the other thing that's important is we are very focused on uh, participatory action design, engineering, and research, which means engaging with our veterans, our Americans with disabilities, our caregivers and family members, and as well as our healthcare providers, so that you know we are solving, we are working on their problems. So, you know, I, we're a very mission-driven organization, more so than being an intellectual curiosity-driven organization. And we talked about bringing you know new technology developments into the assistive area. But it also strikes me that many of the items and many of the capabilities developed in the assistive field actually have greater application for everyone. Just a trivial example, every time I open a PDF, I hit that plus button so I can read the darn thing. And this started out as an enlargement capability was for 508 or for assistive technology, but millions more people can benefit from a lot of these things. Maybe instead of making the wheelchair seat more like an airline seat, it's possible they could improve airline seats to be more like a wheelchair seat. There's no question. Uh, you mentioned AI earlier. The early AI was the people with disabilities with the early AI adopters. You know, word prediction, sentence prediction, all that was all first targeted at helping people with disabilities, especially who use like alternative or augmented communication devices for computers or, or computer access or for speech. That technology was originally, they were the first adopters. That, that, that AI got to people just, we, we used AI first. Now it's becoming generative AI, which that's the early forms of generative AI, is being, you know, as people see it as a revolution, but some of us have been working with it for 30 years. You know, there's other things that not as uh, sophisticated. Text-to-speech is another one that was originally in speech-to-text that was also originally generated for people with disabilities and has become a mainstream tool. Uh, texting, for that matter, right, uh, it's also an accessibility feature that has become widely used. Actually, the ability on your computer to enlarge the windows, right, and uh, do that was also enlarging the text, changing the color of the text, all of that was originally accessibility features. And there are things like automatic door openers, curb cuts, wider doors. Those are all all accessibility features. Like, you know, I tell people, you know, there's probably more delivery people use 
curb cuts than wheelchair users. For that matter, probably more strollers use curb cuts than wheelchair users. So we all benefit, and, th- and that's the advantage when you think about the broader perspective. But even if it's something as specialized as a wheelchair, not many people use wheelchairs that don't need them, don't require one. But the technology that's developed for wheelchairs, under, understanding the ergonomics, understanding better user interfaces, they spin out to other things. We work very early on in what's called a zero-throw joystick, but those are used in other applications as well now, from uh, heavy equipment operation as well as to even computer access. So in universal design, you think of if you can, if you catch the tail ends, in other words, the super high performers, you know, the example of that is that's one of the reasons the automotive industry invests in Formula One and NASCAR and Indy racing and all of that is a lot of that technology that eventually trickles down into your regular car, such as, um, you know, disc brakes, ABS braking, power steering, all of those sorts of things, right? Uh, even uh, now heads up displays and emergency warnings. Yeah, that's what Henry Ford II said, that uh, race them on Sunday and then sell them on Monday. Yeah, so that's one scale. And then if you go to the other tail end, you know, people who are very severely impaired and they've developed technology that they can use and that benefits their inclusion in society and their participation in society, that benefits the middle as well. So you kind of squeeze from both ends, right? You take sort of the superhuman athletes and the technology in those types of sports, and then they translate into everyday use. And then you take things on the other end, people that are on the other end of the bell curve. If you can include them, that also helps everybody. And a final question, you work in the area of assistive technologies. There's also rehabilitation, rehabilitative technologies. Maybe just define the difference between those terms and how they also relate. So assistive technologies are typically those technologies you use out in, the, in your home and community, and they you know, use them kind of long-term. Rehabilitative technologies are can be used, are usually most in a in the hospital, clinic, or can be used actually extended in the home, but they're to improve. The rehabilitative technologies are to help improve your function and reduce impairment, whereas assistive technologies are to augment that function. But they kind of interrelate, strengthen so one another. They interrelate, right. But you can think of a rehabilitative technology, for example, as an armorgometer, right? So like a bicycle you pedal, which you know helps gain strength and physical stamina, but you might actually use a hand cycle to do the same thing, which you know becomes a sports and recreation device. So they, there's certainly some overlap there. And essentially, you want to kind of go hand in hand, right? You want to sort of maintain or improve function as you can, right? And, and then at the same time, augment function where you need to as well. And being a Paralympian yourself, have you also discovered better ways of rehabilitation training for people that have these disabilities, whether they're quadriplegic or paraplegic? the rehabilitative techniques, have those improved also? Well, first, uh, I mean, the big, from from what I was injured in today, the big change is we we kind of transitioned to a survival model to a sports medicine model. So helping people to achieve as much function as they desire, right? And you have them set goals and then we work towards those goals rather than the, um, Let's just get you so you can take care of yourself and, and, and go home, right? So it's literally set higher goals. And so that's been the big change in the, from an attitude perspective. Um, a little bit of a downside is that, in the, at least in the private sector, the length of stay 
of rehab has gotten so short that a lot of the rehab has transitioned from actually learning how to do it to how to learn further. So you wind up responsible for doing a lot of your own rehab once you get out of the rehab setting. And do you also keep track of developments in the ultimate rehabilitation, which would be spinal repair? So look, we we also follow uh, regenerative medicine, right? That's uh, in general, could be spinal repair, could be limb salvage improvement or growing new limbs eventually. I mean, or new organs, people are, I mean, certainly want to look at that. My philosophy has been after, you know, 40 years of experience is that We've seen new disabilities, so conditions that were fatal or didn't exist at all become chronic conditions. Polytrauma was one of them, right, that came really out of a post-9-11 era. Uh, you know, multiple sclerosis, people are living typically much longer with multiple sclerosis than they did 40 years ago. Even diabetes, is, you know, people live well with diabetes. There's been great technologies for um, epilepsy and, and even spinal cord injury. I have lived longer today then the World War II veterans, who were the first spinal cord injury survivors, had lived when I became injured. Dr. Rory Cooper, senior research scientist at the Veterans Health Administration and founder of the Human Engineering Research Laboratories. There's much more to the interview. We'll post it in its entirety, along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, 
it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had 
gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, "Okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.